This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for April 24th, 2017. In this podcast, I have an interview with Joel Pollock. He's a senior editor-at-large with the right-wing news site Breitbart News, and he was part of the press pack that followed Donald Trump through his campaign last year. Enjoy the interview. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. I'm joined on the line now by Joel Pollock. He's a former Republican candidate for the US Congress. He's uh, a senior editor-at-large for Breitbart News, and he followed Donald Trump on the campaign train last year. Uh, he's just published a book, co-authored with Larry Schwickart, called How Trump Won. Um, Joel, how did Trump win? <laughs> by getting more electoral votes, but that's not the answer you're looking for. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, he won in a number of ways, but Principally, he won by taking his message directly to an electorate that had previously felt alienated by both parties, mm-hmm. and particularly on, on issues of immigration and trade, both of which were sort of written off by the political class in this country as technocratic issues, things that could be easily solved by bargaining between the parties, and for which there was no real opposition constituency. And if there were people who opposed it, it was for xenophobic or self-interested reasons, and the opponents would sort of gradually fade into the woodwork, mm-hmm. and the consensus would prevail. Well, it turned out not to be true, and Trump tapped into a deep vein of frustration in this country with the lack of law enforcement on him and the willy-nilly bargaining away of American economic advantages when it comes to free trade agreements. So mm-hmm. he was able to tap into discontent on those issues And once people saw that he was quite serious in his positions and his commitment to do something about it, that's where his media skills really came into play. And he was able to connect with audiences and to to reach people who had previously been alienated from the political process and to bring them in. So it was a triumph on a number of levels, a number of ways. Mm -hmm. And I tell that story in the book through firsthand accounts of my experience on the campaign trail as a reporter. And my my co-author, Larry, talks about it as a historian, giving you the background to the election, as well as some very interesting data and useful information that nobody really had. The professional pollsters didn't have it. Uh, Other people in real time weren't gathering it the way he was. And so he brings that perspective as well. And the the two of us together combined to to work on the book. Uh, From your journalistic point of view, was there any particular anecdote or any particular uh, potential voter that you met that you said, you know, Trump is really connecting here in a way that a traditional Republican would not have? Over and over again, I met voters like that who had a kind of connection with him. But I think the moment when it dawned on me that he could actually win, I had been skeptical of his chances, was a conversation I had at about 12.30, 12.45 in the morning in Virginia. This was at a rally that was supposed to have begun at 9.30 in the evening, and people had been lining up for six or seven hours to get in. And 
more than three hours late, people were still standing, not just at the rally, but outside of it mm-hmm. in the overflow, trying to, trying to get inside. And I looked around this, you know, and I said to people, why are you here? That was sort of a standard question I had at any rally. What brings people to support Donald Trump? And someone, this woman who I was talking to who was there with her children said, I'm here because I want to see history. And it just struck me how convinced she was. And, and I heard similar responses from other people how convinced she was that Trump was going to win when the rest of the media were telling her that there was no way he could win or there was a very slim chance and basically the election was already over and this was just a formality. And I remember sending a text message to my wife saying, I think he's going to do it. Mm-hmm. And of course, I woke up the next, the next morning, I woke up feeling quite differently as one does when you read the media reports because it was like a cold bucket of water in the face every time you covered a Trump rally and if you had any sense of enthusiasm at all for his chances, and, you know, I'm a conservative journalist, so I try to be accurate, but I also try to, I don't try to conceal my, my bias, which is, which is certainly on one side. Um, you know, you have some sort of sense of excitement or, or interest in what had happened the night before. And then, of course, the next morning's news reports by the rest of the journalism, journalists, uh, you, you know, you'd, you'd be convinced again that he couldn't do it. So it was kind of this roller coaster of emotion. And, and ultimately, the voters never wavered in, in their conviction that he could and, and that he did. Well, some voters. His voters. His yes, voters were, yes. were absolutely certain he could do it. That's right. Um, do you think it's possible that he overpromised? Oh, it's, it's not just possible. It's definite. <laughs> I mean, you know, I wrote this a couple of times in covering him on the campaign trail, that not only would he say certain things that seemed very difficult to achieve, but then he would add at the end, it's going to be easy. <laughs> So, you know, it's going to be easy is probably one of the most vulnerable promises in politics, because the moment you promise something to be easy, all of your opponents have a vested interest in making sure that it's not. (laughs) So, you know, I remember writing, well, it's one thing to tell people you're going to solve all these problems. It's another thing to tell them it's going to be easy. So uh, that's definitely overpromising. But I also think that his voters understood that he was overpromising. I think that what they liked was his enthusiasm and in a way, as was said by more than one sympathetic observer, the media kind of take Trump literally but not seriously, whereas his supporters take him seriously but not literally. So people wouldn't necessarily take a promise like that at face value. Uh, which, promise, which promise? Another politician. Oh, a promise uh, you know, that he'll do something easily. I mean, whether it was trade or immigration, you know, we'll solve this problem easily. Well, it's not always so easy. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah. Um, what, what I want to ask you about, and I think that's a very important distinction of whether he should be taken A, seriously, and B, literally. There were a lot of people, including some maybe traditional Republicans who were inching towards supporting Trump as they saw that he was at least going to do better, if not uh, necessarily knowing that he was going to win. And they were sort of waving their hands a little bit and saying that, of course, he's not really going to deport uh 11 million illegal immigrants. And of course, he's not really going to get Mexico to pay for a wall on the southern border. He does seem to be taking himself literally. Well, he does. I think on certain issues, he has definitely begun to follow through. And if if anything, on some of them, more forcefully than in the campaign, the issue of Mexico paying for the wall, for example, when he went to Mexico during the campaign and met with the Mexican president, who, by the way, also invited Hillary Clinton, but she declined the invitation. Trump saw that as an opportunity. He went and he brought up the issue of the wall. And then 
there was some discrepancy as to who said what, but according to Trump, at least, the issue of payment wasn't necessarily decided, but he brought it up and there wasn't necessarily agreement. The Mexican president said he's definitely not paying for it. And now there's this insistence from President Trump that Mexico will pay for the wall. Mexican diplomats actually have pointed out that the United States has ways to make Mexico pay for the wall. So there actually is some some real fear on the Mexican side that Trump could use various executive mechanisms to to make Mexico pay for the wall without even having to uh, use any sort of international treaty or new taxes in Congress or whatever. But but that's that, that's really a side point. The question is, I think you're asking, is really about um, whether and where you draw an interpretive boundary yes, between exactly, what he yeah. says and what he does. And and I think I, I think it's a fair question. I I think that. We don't know, and I think that's also part of his strategy, that he leaves some of these things ambiguous. And that's a way of gaining an advantage over your opponents because they never know where to hit. They don't know where you're going to stop. Certainly in international affairs, it seems to be what he's doing, for example, with, with Russia uh, or with North Korea and Iran, uh, saying that, you know, with Russia in particular, saying that, you know, well, he, he wants to get along with Russia, uh, but he also confronts Russia over the Crimea at the United Nations and, and sends the vice president to meet with the Ukrainian president and offer him the United States guarantees of security again. So Russia, I think, is probably trying to figure out exactly where they sit with President Trump. I think they hoped he would improve relations, and I think he certainly made overtures in that direction. But at do, the same do, time, do you think so? No, do you really think yeah. that um, Putin in particular hoped that Trump, that that was his hope, that he would improve relations with the United States? I think so. I, I think on the Russian side, they certainly seem to express that hope, whether it was just rhetoric or an actual hope. I, I think the Russians realize that if you, look, if you take a step back and look at the, the, the geostrategic idea that Trump was offering consistently throughout the campaign, and this, is, this goes beyond the sort of literal question to just looking at consistently what, what are his policy positions. And over time, Trump seems to want a less interventionist United States. Now, that is in Russia's interest because Russia doesn't like NATO expanding and Russia wants NATO further off its borders and wants NATO to be weakened. And, and so I think Russia decided that it was, it was going to be a good thing if, if they got Trump. Um, that doesn't that, speak, that doesn't speak very well. That doesn't speak very well for Trump. That uh, um, it makes NATO weaker and Russia stronger in the world if Trump is elected. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's true. I'm saying that was a Russian hope. Mm -hmm. um, the the Clinton position was unclear, especially because Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State during a time when Barack Obama was busy weakening NATO and retreating from Russia and giving way in Syria. So, I mean, the actual track record that Hillary Clinton brought. Was was weaker uh, in practice than anything that might have been hoped for in theory from Trump. But um, at the same time, Trump talked a very tough game on nuclear weapons. You know, the, the moment Putin said anything uh, somewhat ambitious on the idea of, of expanding Russia's nuclear forces, Trump came right back by saying he wanted to expand America's forces. And and so um, I, I think Russia is caught up in this ambiguity that that Trump has, I think, quite cleverly cast out there as to what his intentions actually are. I, I think he would like the United States to be less interventionist in a military sense overseas, but at the same time would like the United States to be stronger. And that means, I think, whenever he feels that the United States is challenged or our interests and allies are challenged, he's going to speak out and he's going to move forces into position, as he's done 
already since taking office. I mean, the very first thing he did was send the Secretary of Defense to East Asia, which I think was a very strong signal uh, to China that he's very serious about American security priorities in the Western Pacific. And uh, he's also hosting the Japanese Prime Minister as well. I, yeah. I want to stop you on that, Joel, because... Um, Russia clearly is looking outwards and is concerned about NATO and concerned about um, its uh, relations and you could say domination of the former Soviet states, particularly the Baltics and Ukraine. Um, but Russia is concerned and Putin is concerned about internal politics in Russia as well. And one of the weakest points that Putin has is that he lacks democratic uh, legitimacy and the pro-Putin uh, media in Russia, which is basically all of the media, certainly all of the offline media, their take is to constantly undermine the perception of American democracy uh, and to constantly um, undermine the perception that the United States has high ideals and isn't Trump really, you know, playing into Putin's hands when uh, an interviewer says to Trump, um, you know, this guy, Putin, has murdered people? And Trump says, yeah, well, we kill people too. That, that's the sort of line that you get from um, Putin propaganda TV stations. Well, I think the people who are undermining American democracy in Putin's eyes most forcefully are, are Trump's opponents. I mean, they're going around saying that the election was stolen or the election was rigged or didn't really count. And, and Trump was Trump saying was that loudly before the election. election. Well, that's just a matter of political rhetoric during a campaign. Once he's been elected and won the Electoral College and has gone through every constitutional path you have to do to become president, to then say that he's not legitimate and to send hundreds of thousands of people in the streets to block traffic in illegal demonstrations and to stuff airports and whatever. I mean, the idea that Trump is an illegitimate president more than anything Trump has said to broadcast. And, and by the way, it's not just, you know, Russian saying this. I mean, I listen to Voice of American News, which may, by the way, come in for reorganization under the Trump campaign because they've got a leftward ideological tilt that I think doesn't represent the country as a whole. But Voice of America, you know, I, I should say, I should say for U.S. listeners, I should say for U.S. listeners, Voice of America isn't typically held heard in the U.S., but it is a govern a U.S. government sponsored station that's, that's right. a, a aimed for perhaps propaganda values at countries outside the U.S., but particularly to um, right. places like Russia and so forth. Sorry, go ahead, Joel. Right. So you think right? So you think Voice of America would would at least uh, you know cover the new administration with, an, with a semblance of even handedness, but. In that first week, they gave massive prominence to the protest against Trump. So I think that does rather more than, than you know, anything he might say in an interview you know, when, when, when pressed by a, an aggressive host. Um, that does more to undermine the, the image of American democracy than anything else. I think there's a sense of panic on the American left that is um, partly because they really just expected to win and still cannot believe they didn't. Mm -hmm. And it's it's it's. You know, it, it's, it's a bit of a, a media creation that has been unable to stop since the end of the campaign. I mean, Clinton told voters, if you elect Trump, all these horrible things are going to happen. And they expected that she'd win. And now that he's won, it's very hard to turn off that, that fear machine. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that American voters in general, if you, certainly if you look outside Beltway and you look, look past the east and west coast and look at you know, the, sort of the bulk of the country, People are either satisfied with Trump or, or still waiting to see what happens. And I think most people 
uh, not only accept the election as legitimate, but are, are satisfied with at least some prospect of change that, that they've long been promised. And there's a sense that he's doing what he, what he said he would do on a number of issues, whether it's on trade policy or on immigration. Um, and, that, you know, that's part of the problem the left has with him is that he is doing what he said he would do. Uh, he may not do everything he said he would do. And, and as I said earlier, he may, it may not be easy for him to do it as he's discovering with, with some of the resistance to these executive orders. But I think people see that he is at least trying. And so, um, you know, he doesn't even really have his cabinet fully in place yet because Democrats have been using whatever delaying tactics they can, whatever parliamentary maneuvers they can. It's sort of unprecedented to have it dragged on this long, but they feel very weak and they're trying to stop him in any way they can. Um, so he doesn't even have his government fully up and running yet. Um, but once he's there, then I think it'll be uh, easier to assess how much progress he's made. Sure. One last topic I want to um, get you to comment on, Joel, is um, you said that and you agreed that he probably overpromised, uh, and he certainly won. I don't mean a, it as a general he, comment. I, I don't mean it as a general comment. I, I mean, you asked me if he ever overpromised. I said yes when you say things are easy. Okay. But again, well, you're, I don't you're, think, you're a staunch supporter. Said, you're a staunch supporter, and you agree that at least sometimes he overpromised. Yeah. I suspect that he may have overpromised more than that, and that people may also have read into, even though he didn't necessarily say it, people may have read in other promises. Uh, that were ne- not necessarily said, at least not explicitly. And he certainly won in a very unconventional way. And he, he had the advantage that nobody saw him coming. Can he do that a second time? It's a real, it's a very good question. Certainly, I think it looks like he's going to win the next, or his party will win the next midterm elections uh, in 2018 when the, the House and Senate go back and is, is uh, up for election. And the reason he's going to win in 2018 is simple mathematics, that the Republicans have very few seats that are being contested, while the Democrats have three times as many seats uh, in the Senate that are being contested. So Trump will probably come out of that okay. Uh, in 2020, it's very hard to know. Um, what is also clear is that Democrats have not yet found a message that resonates with the voters they lost to Trump, and they have not found leadership for their party. There's a couple of candidates, Senate, Senator Elizabeth Warren and a couple others, they come from the sort of liberal firebrand wing of the party, and it's not clear how widely that resonates with the public. So they're still in a kind of state of shock, and they haven't reorganized yet. Maybe, again, too early to, to say about 2020, but over the next year, that's the big challenge the Democrats have. Can they regain some of the voters that they lost to Trump? Because keep in mind, some of the counties that Obama won uh, in some of these states that he surprisingly carried in November, some of those counties went to Obama in 2012 and, and went to, for Trump in 2016. So the Democrats have, have some reconnecting to do. And, and right now they're, they're very outraged and hurt and wounded and they're projecting that. But that's what voters care about. The voters care about what are you going to do for me? And Democrats have to figure out what that is. And they have to do it over the next year or so. Uh, so, so does Trump, though. Trump will help keep their base together, united against him. There's a, there's a level of outrage at the very fact that he was elected and at his rhetoric and some of his policies and so forth. So in that sense, uh, Trump helps them keep their base together. And I think he knows that. I think he knows that he uh, provokes some of the uh, left wing in the Democratic Party. And, that, and that's good for his purposes, because, again, he's going to try to not just to hold his own party, but to keep that center and to keep that swing vote in, in some of the industrial states. Um, Trump may help uh, Democrats, but it's not going to be sufficient. They have to come up with 
forward direction. Right now, they're still looking backward to last November. And if I were a Democrat, I would be advising them to do extensive study of the industrial states that they lost, that they hadn't lost in 30 years. We're talking about Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. some of these areas. What, what, what do they need to do? They need to figure out what those voters want, and they need to give it to them. And Keith Ellison, who's one of the frontrunners for the Democratic leadership, last night in a debate said, Trump stole our message. Well, that used to be what Republicans said about Bill Clinton, that Bill Clinton had stolen their message. You know, when he came to the American people and said, the era of big government is over, that was a conservative message. And Clinton said that to the voters, and they, and they followed him to the polls. That's and true. Republicans complained about it, but, you know, you can't complain about it. You've got to figure out, well, if he's taken our message, do we need a new message, or do we challenge his delivery on that message? And I think Democrats are still figuring that out. Joel Pollack, Senior Editor-at-Large for Breitbart News, and uh, just co-authored a book called How Trump Won, The Inside Story of a Revolution. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you very much. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on April 24th, 2017. I have links in the show notes to Joel's book and other information about him. Do you know someone who I should interview? What topics should I be covering? I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. And if you like the podcast, there's one thing that you can do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating, and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO. You can also follow Joel Pollock at Joel Pollock. And most importantly, subscribe to the show for free. You can use iTunes if you're an Apple person or Google Play Music if you're on Android. And there's links for both of those and the RSS feed if you're old school. You can find that all and get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming on Wednesday, that's April 26th, I'll have an interview with the presenter of the In The Thick podcast, Julio Ricardo Varela. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.